are our creator. And you have created us for the very purpose of worshiping you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy that has given us a heart that desires to worship you in such a way. We pray that you would forgive us for our many sins, for we know that we sin often. We pray that your spirit would bring conviction and reveal to us those sins that we need to confess and forsake. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased by your spirit to teach us truth this day. As we look at this life of a man who loved the Lord, but also sinned greatly against him. We pray, Father, that we would understand that we likewise have sinned against you often and that we, except by the grace of God, would have followed in his footsteps. We pray, Father, that you would give us understanding of your truth, that we would examine ourselves according to your word, that you would bring conviction of sin so that we might repent in those areas that your spirit brings to our mind. And Father, that you would renew us and that you would strengthen us so that we might walk in the path of the righteous. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to bring our petitions to you. You know the needs that we have, and we pray that you would meet each of those. We pray for those members unable to be with us today. We pray that your blessings would be upon them and that you would make it possible for them to return soon. We continue to pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bring an end to this virus that keeps so many away. We pray, Father, for those who are older especially, that you would protect them from this illness. We also pray, Father, for Lana and her family during this time of sorrow and losing her grandmother. We pray that you would comfort them as only you can and that all that would be done during this time would be pleasing in your sight. As we think about death, Father, we need to realize that life is short than the judgment. So we pray, Father, that as people contemplate in the loss of this loved one that they would be confronted with the truth that they need to be right with thee. We also pray, Father, for those who would be traveling in a way that your hand of grace would be upon their lives and bring them back to us quickly. We pray for Pastor Tiago as he preaches this day in Laurel there at Audubon that you would use him to expound your word clearly. Help them as they seek to pack and move this week that your grace would be upon them and that you would give them safety as they travel. We pray, Father, that your spirit would move not only in this place but wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day and that many would be brought into the kingdom of God to bring glory and honor to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and let's turn again to Mark chapter 14. We will conclude chapter 14 today. It seems like we have been in this chapter for a long time. It's a, a lengthy chapter. As you see, it has four, 72 verses. So that's one reason we've been in for such a long time. Let's read verses 66 through the end of the chapter. Mark 14, beginning with verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You're also with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
And a second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had spoken, Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. One of the saddest things that Christians have to deal with is when a high-profile Christian falls into some great sin. Sinful actions bring sinful results that affects the entire body of Christ. But not only do high-profile Christians bring such shame upon the name of Christ, any Christian that sins in such a way brings shame upon the name of Christ. And we must keep that in mind as we look at this life of Peter and what takes place here. Christians must guard their self against sin. The sad thing about it is that we all at one time or another have acted just like Peter. And the world delights when Christians fall into sin. Can you imagine on this evening when all of this has taken place, Jesus being brought before Annas and Capias, if CNN or one of the other news stations would have been reporting on this night and they had seen Peter following at a distance and seen what Peter was doing around the campfire and all that was transpiring, they would have loved this, quote, juicy story to be able to point out that Peter was a hypocrite. Now, as I mentioned last time, you have to look at all of the Gospels, all four Gospels. And, and let me pause here just a minute because as I think of the Gospels, I can remember it was not until I got into high school that I realized that the Gospels were the same story being told over and over again. I didn't even realize that until I got up into high school when I was forced to take Bible class. Well, I shouldn't say I was forced. It was elective. I took it and had to study those things. And I realized at that time, I mean, all my life, all the way up to I was like 14 years old, I had not understood that the Gospels were just simply the four stories told by different men by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying that so that you children understand that all four Gospels are story of Jesus, the good news. But anyway, what we see here is you take all four Gospels and you put, it, put them together to be able to understand the full story, or we could say, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story. Because Mark doesn't give us the entire story. He gives us bits and pieces. For example, Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter's accent is what gave him away, that gave him away as a Galilean and brought about the third denial. Mark alone tells us that the crow or the rooster crowed that first time after he had denied Jesus and he went out on the porch. But yet Peter paid no attention. And Luke alone tells us that an hour passed between the second and third denial, and he also tells us that Jesus looked at him. Jeff Thomas, and I quote Jeff Thomas a lot, uh, Jeff will be with us this coming January at our Deep South Founders Conference. He has retired, of course, from pastoring after 50-something years, and he's from Wales, and we look forward to him being with us. But listen to what Jeff Thomas says. This is a remarkable instance recorded by all four evangelists. It is more than an instant in the life of Peter. All the church of the New Covenant can identify with Peter and what happens as all the church of the Old Covenant can identify with King David and his fall. These men were individuals and various details of their succumbing to temptation are unique to them. But the pattern of their fall has been repeated throughout history. Paul tells the Corinthians, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us of those of whom 
The fulfillment of the age has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So what he's pointing out here is that we must look at their life as an example and learn from their life that we likewise could fall into sin. We must be aware that sin is at the door waiting to overcome us. And as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Now this is one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament. I believe one of the reasons why it's so familiar is that we all can relate to it in a very personal way. I mean, every single person in this room at some time or another has disappointed someone else. We all are guilty of that. We've either disappointed a parent, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a boss, an employee, church member, or someone else at some time or another in our life. We have, quote, dropped the ball or embarrassed ourselves or failed to come through sinned against a brother or sister in some way or another. Now, why does this happen? Well, you know why it happens. Because we're sinners. Even though we are saved by God's grace, we are still sinners. Every man has been affected by the fall, and that's the reason why they sin. But even after we are Christians, we know that we continue to battle with sin every single day of our life. I mean... Most of us have battled with sin even this morning. Especially if you're a parent of young children and trying to get your children ready for church, you battle with sin every morning. As I can't remember who's the original author of it, but those little vipers dressed in diapers. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, sometimes it's a tug of war on Sunday morning getting ready to go to church. We all have to continuously deal with sin. And as we consider Peter's life, let us remember those words of Paul. I said first, I mean second Corinthians, I meant to say first Corinthians there in first Corinthians chapter 10 verses 11 and 12. We must heed those words of Paul. Now first, I want us to see that after Jesus' arrest, Peter and another disciple, we are told in John, followed Jesus at a distance and they came to the door of the palace where Annas and Capias most likely lived in the same palace because Annas was the father-in-law of Capias. And they come to this palace and the other disciple... We don't know exactly who he is. Supposedly, most think that it's John. Some say that it was Joseph of Arimathea and or Nicodemus, but I don't agree with that because, like I said, the Sanhedrin later, all in the Sanhedrin agreed to put Jesus to death. Well, that would include Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea if they were up and there. I don't think they were there because they wouldn't agree to put him to death. But anyway, whoever it was, this, this disciple had some kind of pull and was able to get Peter into the palace. And then they separate. We're told there in John chapter 18 that this disciple was known by the high priest and therefore was permitted to enter and got Peter in. And then they were separated. And then Peter, we see, he goes over to where the fire is in the courtyard to understand exactly what's going on here. It's necessary to understand the construction of the palace there that Annas and Capias lived in. A.T. Robertson, the 19th Greek scholar, says, an oriental house is usually built around a quatangular inter court. In other words, you have this large four walls um, around the inner court, the house, all that's in that particular uh, facility that's called a palace. And he says there's a passage through the front of the house uh, closed next to the street by a heavy folding gate. And then there's a smaller gate where a single person, which was kept by a porter, and of course this was that damsel, she kept she was the porter that kept that smaller gate. 
And the interior court often paved and marked and opened wide to the sky where the attendants made their fire and the passage beneath the front of the house from the street to the court is the porch. And the place where Jesus stood before the high priest may have been an open room or place where the audience on the ground in the rear or one side of the court. Such rooms were open in front being customary. So you have this large building that expands over a pretty good distance area and you have of course the high priest that sits up on kind of like what we have here, a stage, and then Jesus would of course been down in front, and then on further back you would have had the fire, open air fire with the servants and Peter. So that was the setting that Peter was in. He was in what we would call the lower level, but he could hear what was going on and he could see what was going on as he watched very intensely. Sinclair Ferguson says, poor Peter. He loved his master too much to desert him absolutely. And so he followed him at a distance and at a considerable personal risk. Yet he loved him too much to be able to remain indifferent to the consequences of all out faithfulness. It is instructed to realize that he is better remembered for his denial than his degree of faithfulness he demonstrated. And of course, that's what we don't remember. We don't remember his degree of faithfulness in following Jesus into the palace. What we remember is what his unfaithfulness in his denial. One commentator said, Peter was drawn by love, but kept a safe distance because of fear. But at least Peter followed, even though it was an at a distance where the other disciples had deserted him except for the one that was with him who we do not know exactly and cannot be dogmatic who it was. Now second, we see that the testing of Peter begins. And Mark records a progress here. And there's four facts that I want you to see. So in other words, we have four things under main heading number two. I don't want you to get mixed up on that. So the first thing that we see under this is that the servant girl thinks that she knows Peter, that she has seen him before, perhaps at the temple with Jesus. And as the light of the fire shines on Peter's face, she begins to think that this is one of Jesus' disciples. And she makes it clear, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, no doubt this startles Peter. And he quickly denies what she says. John tells us that she was a damsel, a, a maiden, a young girl who kept the door, a porter. In other words, it wasn't some strong, husky soldier. It wasn't even a man. It was a small, young servant girl, possibly younger than a teenager. If you remember, most girls in their teenage years were married at this time. Calvin says, terrified by a woman's voice, immediately denies his master, and yet but lately thought himself a valiant soldier even unto death. Let us therefore remember that our strength is so far from being sufficient to resist powerful attacks that it will give way when there is mere shadow of a battle. But in this way, God gives us the just reward of treachery when he disarms and strips us of all power so that when we are thrown off the fear of him, we tremble for a mere nothing. For if a deep fear of God had dwelt in Peter's heart, it would have been an invincible force. But now, naked and defenseless, he trembles while he's still far from danger. I mean, if you think about this, it's almost embarrassing, is it not? Here's this little girl saying, you're one of them. And he gets fearful. And he denies what she has said. I mean, think about it. It's a child and it's a girl. Who pays attention in that culture to a female anyway? Much less a servant. Even those around the fire. 
at this moment did not pay any attention to her. No one joined in in this accusation. They simply continued their own conversations and totally disregarded what she said. Then second, under the second point, we see there in verse 68, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. I mean, Peter gives what we can call a typical cover-up. When you're caught with your hand in the cookie jar, you respond, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I don't have my hand in a cookie jar. Isn't that what a child normally says? I mean, they're going to defend themselves. They're going to naturally, because of their sinful nature, lie. And that's what Peter did. He, he, he lied to try to get out of this pressure cooker. But his actions reveal much more to us. I mean, he went out on the porch. He removed himself from the fire and moved over to where there was an area, maybe because it was dark, so that she could not continue to look at him. And we see that Mark tells us the rooster crowed, but it had no impact on him whatsoever. He completely ignored it. And then the third minor point is Peter returns. Matthew tells us he sat down with the servants to the, see the end, to see the outcome. I mean, isn't it an interesting statement that Matthew tells us here? Does it mean that Peter's still believing that Jesus is going to not die? Does Peter think that Jesus is going to make a powerful statement? Remember at the very beginning of his ministry when they tried to uh, grab Jesus and they were going to throw him off the cliff and he just walked right through the middle of them? Is, is that what Peter's thinking? That Jesus is about to make an escape? That he's about to make some kind of statement and then he's going to walk right through the middle of them and, and escape and he's going to be there with him? I mean, he's hoping for some kind of uh, final vindication at this point. How do we handle this in what he did here? How do we handle in what the girl says to him? I mean, it, there even appears in the Gospels to be a contradiction because Matthew tells us that another girl saw him saying, you also were with Jesus in Galilee. Well, is there a contradiction? Well, no. Listen to what Eric Lines of Apostolic Press says. On the occasion of Peter's first denial, one of the high priest's servants accused Peter of being a servant of Christ, or disciple of Christ. Prior to Peter's second denial, the writer informs us that he accused by a plurality of people, including the same servant girl who, was confronted, who confronted him the first time. Also an unnamed man in Luke twenty-two fifty-eight, And a group of individuals simply designated as they in John eighteen twenty-five, And then an hour later, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of Malchus, accuses Peter in John 18, 26, along with those who stood by the fire in Matthew 26, 73 and Mark 14, 70. Nothing in these accounts is inconsistent. So again, you put the four Gospels together and you see clearly what's going on here. So what we're saying here is that not only were these three people accusing people, uh, uh, G, uh, Peter of denying Jesus and pointing out to Jesus, or Peter, I get it right in a minute, Peter, that he was with Jesus, we see that others were saying the same thing. So the pressure was building, and this servant girl begins to say to the others around the fire, uh, like I said, being a little girl, she's probably going around tapping them and said, Don't you understand this guy was with Jesus and making accusations against Peter? But he denies again. And now he commits a second lie. 
As the old saying goes, one lie leads to another. Tommy Edwards wrote a song which many of you have never heard, were not even born, 1950. I wasn't even born in 1950. By the title, One Lie Leads to Another. You can pull it up on internet and Tony Bennett, some of y'all might know him. I know Miss Bunny knows him. Sings this song. And there's some truth in this song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm just going to read the lyrics to you. One lie leads to another. Two lies cover the other. Three lies, now you're in an awful fix. Four lies, you're getting in deeper. Five lies pile up steeper. Get wise and you're going to be telling six. You'd be, you better listen and take care. Don't you tell seven. Beware, you won't go to heaven. Up there, the good with the bad don't mix. If you're true to each other and you love one another from the day you fall, then you'll never have to tell another lie at all. There is some truth in that. Like I said, one lie does lead to another. And if you tell three, as he says here, you're in an awful fix. Well, Peter was in an awful fix. We see quite clearly that he begins to take a strong stand on a lie. We could say that Satan has set him up and he has taken the bait and he is hooked. Which leads me to my fourth minor point. An hour passed and now these other bystanders think they recognize him from the garden. They say, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. It appears that Peter, like Peter often was, could not keep his mouth shut. He was in a conversation and they heard that southern Galilean draw. And they knew that he was not one of them. And they point out very clearly to him that he was with Jesus. And he loses it. I mean, he is really upset now. And he begins to call down curses and swear, as we see there in verse 71. He began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The floodgate of self-control was broken wide open and Peter intensely denied his Lord. I mean, he was calling down curses upon himself. In other words, if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. May God punish me, is what he more or less was saying. I mean, it's almost as if we're expecting lightning to strike him at any moment. Peter did not use curse to mean cuss here. I mean, what he's talking about is cursings coming upon him to try to defend himself from lying. He was powerfully insisting that he did not know this man named Jesus in the strongest terms. Again, we see God's mercy and grace in not striking him dead. Now at the very moment that he gets so upset and he begins to call curses down upon himself, three things happen almost simultaneously. First of all, the rooster crows the second time. Second, Jesus looked at him. And then thirdly, he broke down and wept bitterly. Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him earlier that night. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept, verse 72. Which brings us to our third major point. The pain that Peter felt was due to the privileges that he had known and the statements he had made. I mean, think of all the privileges that Peter had experienced. He was one of the first disciples called. He had seen so much of what Jesus had done throughout his ministry. He was 
in the inner circle, allowed to see what the other disciples were not allowed to see. He had gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he had beheld the glory of Jesus. He had actually heard the voice of God, not only when Jesus was baptized, saying, this is my beloved Son, but now on the Mount of Transfiguration, He had heard, Thou art my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. A similar statement to what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it was Peter who made the great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus told him that the Spirit had revealed this to him. But now we see that he had rejected Jesus' words. I mean, he had said that he would not deny his Lord. He said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And then he said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. How those words must have come back into his mind. Jesus had shown Peter personal kindness, pastoral care, even warning him of the temptation that was coming. And when the eyes of Jesus met, the eyes of Peter, he remembered what he had said. But what Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus was not condemnation, but they were eyes of compassion. Sinclair Ferguson says, He saw in those eyes not condemnation, but compassion. That was the turning point in his life. Jesus had tried to break him down many times before. Now in this most painful and memorable way, Jesus saw himself, or Peter saw himself as he really was, repentant and was remade into the great apostle. Do you hear what he's saying? That it's through brokenness that he became the man of God that he needed to be. He had to be tamed. He had to be broken to be usable for God. And Peter saw in Jesus' love and forgiveness. And this is what broke his heart. He immediately was ashamed of how he had sinned against his Lord and he wept bitterly. And this was the right response. When a person sees that he has sinned against God, Brokenness is the right response. Just as in David's life, when Nathan came to David and he, and he pointed at David and said, Thou art the man. David was broken. And that was the right response. See, great privileges should lead to great repentance when you forsake those privileges. And that's what Peter had done. He had forsaken the privileges that he had enjoyed and he needed to experience great repentance. Children, God has given you parents who love you and have tried to do everything in their power to teach you truth. And when you sin against them, you sin against God. You sin against the privileges that you have as a child in a Christian home. And when you sin against those privileges, you need to repent. May God be pleased to break your heart as He broke Peter's heart so that you were usable in the kingdom of God. Donald McLeod said, 
This is one of the greatest moments in the history of the Christian church because it isn't a moment in history of Peter alone. It's a moment in the church's history. In many ways, Peter is embodiment of the church in the same way that David embodies the old dispensation and his adultery. These are events that re repeat constantly in church history and in the experience of each one of us as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a singular, solemn moment. It is virtual in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. And I think that though one shrinks from this message, it has much to say to us about the Spirit of God who will take and apply the warnings and encouragement of this event. And if we are serious people and desiring to please God, saying about these words, we hear at this moment, teach me thy way, O Lord, lead me in plain truth. Now the question may come to your mind, why did Peter fail to keep his promise? Why did he fail? I mean, later he stands boldly for Jesus Christ. He's willing to die and he does die on a cross upside down because he said he was not worthy to die the same way that his Lord died. I believe the main reason he failed was due to what happened just a few hours earlier there in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with James and John, Jesus told him to stay awake and pray. Pray for me and pray for yourself. What did he do? He fell asleep. Not once. Not twice. How many times? Three times. Peter, as well as James and John, missed out on receiving the power to stand firm, to stand with Christ. And this is true of all Christians. We all face temptations every day. And the right time to pray about temptation is not when the temptation comes. When is the time we ought to pray for temptation? Ahead of time. That's what Jesus told these three disciples. Pray ahead of time that you might not fail. What does Jesus teach us in the Lord's Prayer? Or the model prayer, whichever one you want to call it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A daily prayer. And praying this every day will help us be ready for whatever temptation comes our way. A.W. Pink, speaking of prayer in one of his books, said that every servant of God should pray for themselves in this manner every day. And then he quotes a verse that we read in our scripture reading this morning, Psalms 119.17. I encourage you to memorize this short verse. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. We all memorize that. Lord, hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. And we know it, that only if the Lord holds us up will we be safe. I wonder how many pastors have fallen into sin because they neglected to pray such a prayer. Lord, hold thou me up that I should be safe. We need to be faithful in praying that prayer. And then finally... Number four, what is it to deny the Lord Jesus Christ? I think we can all identify with Peter. I know I can. I wish I could stand here this morning and say, I've never denied Jesus Christ. Well, I know that's not true. 
Let me mention some of the ways that we can deny Jesus Christ. It is possible to deny Jesus Christ explicitly and right forth, just as Peter did on this particular occasion. Peter was guilty of explicitly and forthright denying Jesus. There was a straightforward question, do you know Jesus? And there was an immediate answer, no. That's what Peter was saying. Now maybe you ask, or ask this question, are you conservative? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe in creation, hell, that the Bible is literally true? Or you may be asked, if you believe in the sanctity of life, are you anti-abortion? These are questions that you can be asked when you're in school or when you can be out in society. People might ask you these questions, putting you to the test. Well, they may ask if you were even raised in a Christian home. Are your parents Christian? Do you go to church? Do you believe in waiting until marriage to have sex? Do you obey your parents? I mean, all of these questions are probing questions to see where you stand, who you stand with, what your worldview is. And if you say no to any of these questions, then you're no better than Peter. When you deny those things that are connected to Christianity, you're denying Christ. Second, we can deny Christ by our silence. John Stott told a story how he was riding on the train to southwest Wales. He says, as I traveled by sleeper, I found myself sharing a two-birth cabin with a young lad. He occupied the top bunk in the morning while preparing to wash. He accidentally dropped the contents of his sponge bag on the floor and vented an annoyance by taking the name of the Lord in vain. I said nothing. Indeed, I was sorely tempted to remain silent. The usual possible excuses came to my mind. It's none of your business. You've not, you're not responsible for him. He'll only laugh at you if you say something. But the previous evening, I had preached on Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, but do not sin. I had spoken about righteous indignation and the facade of sweet reasonableness which often conceal our moral cowardness and compromise. An inner struggle followed as I argued with myself and I prayed. And not until 10 or 15 minutes later did I find the courage to speak. Although his immediate reaction was unfavorable, I was soon able to witness to the Christ whom he had blasphemed and to give him an evangelistic booklet. I suppose this simple antidote could be paralleled a thousand times. Again and again an opportunity presents itself to speak for our Lord Jesus Christ, but we hold our peace. And what is true of us as individual believers seem to characterize and paralyze the whole church. How many times have you and I kept silent when the name of our Lord Jesus Christ has been blasphemed? Or when the name of His church has been criticized? How many times have we kept silent? Later, in his epistle, Peter wrote, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, as Jeff Thomas says, people might observe you live a particular way and there are certain absences, things that you do not do, place you, places you do not go, and they notice that there was truth that you seemed to align yourself with, principles which you seemed to govern and regulate your life. One day, out of the blue, you were asked for the reason of your hope, and you're startled and unprepared to give an answer. What Peter is saying, 
always be prepared to give an answer for your hope, for the reason why you live the way you live. Don't be silent. And then thirdly, we can deny Christ by hypocrisy. Now this wasn't the last time that Peter behaved in a sinful way. We know that. Again, he was a believer, a Christian, but he was still a sinner just like you and I are. We know in Antioch, he was intimidated by other Jewish Christians insisting upon keeping the old covenant food codes, circumcision, and certain days. I mean, Peter was acting like a hypocrite. And his example even influenced Barnabas. And and Paul had to come in and rebuke Peter for the way that he was acting because he was given a false impression as far as Christianity was concerned. I mean, how often do we ourselves fall into a particular trap? may happen even within the church. Some pride themselves in taking what they call the middle ground. The middle ground between truth and error. But let me tell you, there is no middle ground between truth and error. It is easy to pull up some kind of facade of hypocrisy. We can easily deny Christ by the way we behave, living contrary to the Word of God. When we say one thing and do another thing, we must realize to do anything like this is to deny Christ. Let me close by saying that Peter's fall reveals our own weaknesses. As the old saying goes, the best of men are but mere men. But Peter's repentance magnifies the goodness and mercy of God. It shows us that God is a God that holds out pardon, holds out salvation to all who will come to Him and repent in faith. And it's our duty to pray to the Lord, to pray that He will restrain us and keep us by His Spirit. We ought to pray whenever we start to undertake any kind of work for the Lord that we may be able to fulfill it and not fail in our effort. That He will supply for us the strength that we need to go all the way that we need to go to the end. As we see there in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. And 32, Jesus told Peter that he was going to go through some difficult times. And that Satan was going to do all he could to cause him to fall flat on his face. But he would come through it because Jesus said, I have prayed for you, Peter. Question. Does Jesus pray for you and me like He prayed for Peter? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Andrew Murray said that the main thing that Jesus is doing in heaven right now is praying for you and for me. Conviction of our own weakness should not prevent us from going to God, but it should cause us to do just the opposite. It ought to stimulate us to pray, knowing that He who has begun a good work in us will complete it. That He will continue to give us the strength that we need to persevere to the end. But we must ask. Pray. Hold thou me up, I shall be safe. 
It is an unbeatable combination when you send your prayers to the one who sits on the throne of grace there in heaven and intercedes for you. Hebrews 7, 25c. Another verse that would be good for us to memorize. He always lives to intercede for them. That's what Jesus is doing. He's interceding on our behalf even at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. If He's interceding for us, then we know that He loves us and cares for us. Therefore, He gives us the ability to love Him and live for Him. May we, like Peter, be renewed and strengthened. We don't see it in this passage, but we'll see it in a passage later. Be renewed and strengthened so that we become a vessel in God's hand to bring much glory and honor to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this example that has been set before us. And we pray that we would learn from this example that as sinners, we are not hopeless, but we have hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Cause us to look to Him daily for the strength that we need. Cause us, Father, to pray ahead of time before we come in to the way of temptation. Cause us to pray this prayer, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. What a wonderful truth that is, Father. And cause us to be mindful that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us even at this very moment. How we pray, Father, for those that do not know this Christ, those that have never come to Him in true repentance and faith, how we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would look to Christ and be saved. And I pray for us as Christians, Father, that we will be faithful, and that we would look to You for the strength that we need so that we might live for You and bring honor and glory to Your name and not fall into temptation. And this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.